0: Mikel Arteta's arsenal is in the middle of one of its best runs of form since his appointment in 2019. Can it last? And meanwhile, on the other side of North London, Antonio Conte has been handed the wheel of a sinking ship. How can he turn it around? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Episode 7 of the Tactics Room presented by Breaking the Lines. My name is Will Fowler. So happy that you've chosen to join me again for another edition of this tactical analysis podcast what an episode we have for you today it's been a wild week in football the derby matches the european football champions League, europa league Conference League, if you count the conference league as European football, managerial sackings, managerial appointments. But with all of that going on, we're going to lock straight in on North London, where two clubs heading in opposite directions reside. First, on the white side of the region, Tottenham Hotspur have been in a downward spiral since reaching the Champions League final three seasons ago, but they may have just made one of the biggest managerial appointments in the clubs, history to turn them back in the right direction. Antonio Conte, the serial winner, is taking over Spurs and all of their beautifully frustrating footballers. We'll talk about Conte and what a potential Spurs setup looks like underneath his reign. But first, we start with the red side, Arsenal, who are sitting fifth in the Premier League despite the worst three-match start to a season in Premier League history. And we all remember that, don't we? Three matches, three losses, zero goals scored. And then there was an international break. So there was two weeks to sit on it, but a solidified defense, smart acquisitions, a keeper in top form, and an attacking quartet with bundles of young, exciting talent have Arsenal fans dreaming of a top four finish. But can they get there? I had the chance to speak with Aiden Suchak, a.k.a. FB on Twitter to discuss exactly that. Aiden is an avid Arsenal supporter with impressive eyes for the game. And in our conversation, we spoke about things like how has Pep Guardiola influenced Mikel Arteta's coaching tactics? What makes the transformed defense so special in the first place? And finally, after two years of preaching, of preaching patience, are we finally starting to see what Mikel Arteta's arsenal looks like? Aiden, I want to thank you again for coming on to the podcast. I know I learned a lot through it, and I hope the listeners can as well. Here's my chat with Aiden Suchak. So I'm joined now by Aiden Suchak, Aiden at ITestFootball on Twitter, uh, Arsenal supporter, Arsenal tactician, you could say, one of our contributors at Breaking the Lines, um, and he's written some fantastic, fantastic player profiles. So go and check them out. Aiden, thank you for jumping on the tactics room. So happy you're here. Thanks for having me, Will.
1: Um, I'm happy to be here and and grateful for the opportunity.
0: So let's uh, jump right in then. Cause I think, I know we spoke a little bit prior to the recording and just to give the, the listeners an idea of what our goal is for this conversation is we're, we're, we're coming at the, this arsenal discussion from two different sides of, of a rivalry. You could say, I will keep my, my biases out of this discussion. I will try to see this in an objective light, but I know you yourself are, are, um, at least on, on Twitter, you are a, a, a keen eye for, for Arsenal football club, the way that they, the way that they play, the little things that they do, the tactics of the way Mikel Arteta sets up this Arsenal team. So um, the big thing that I want to, to kind of get to the bottom of is specifically Mikel Arteta, his tactics and what he's trying to do with the players that he now has. So that's the end goal for, for, for what I think we'll, we'll try to knock out for today. Um, but the first and the most important thing that, that, I want to ask you about in terms of Mikel Arteta, because I know you're a big Arteta supporter. That's the profile picture on, on, on Twitter is the Arteta at PSG. Um, and you've been a, a strong advocate for Arteta, even, even prior to this recent run of good form. So um, specifically with you, how have you seen this man, Mikel Arteta, former captain, first time major manager, tactically evolve from when he first took the job at Arsenal to now? Because there have been obvious improvements um, in a number of, of different areas.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a good question to start with, and I think it's a it's a it's a good way to set the context for the wider discussion that we're, that we're probably going to have. So I think, you know, when it comes to Arteta as a coach, obviously he was the assistant to Pep uh, for a couple of years before coming to Arsenal, and and it's it, it kind of follows a trend of some other managers who have kind of sprung up as really really young guys who 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 are now sort of managing some of the biggest clubs in the world. I mean, you have Julian Nagelsmann is probably the most popular of these names, and he's still really, really young dude, and he's already at Bayern right now. Um, but most of those guys come up through sort of whether it's a lower league club, like we saw with Frank Lampard in the championship, or whether it's something um, like with, with Nagelsmann, where he came to a couple German clubs before ending up at Bayern. Even Thomas Tuchel is a good example of this. Arteta came straight from managing, you know, as Pep's assistant right into the Arsenal team. And he started, I think, um, not really knowing exactly what he was looking for initially, because obviously he did he did start during a period of a lot of turmoil where he just didn't have any players around him that were necessarily picked for the system that he would want to play. I, I would actually argue that even up to this point, we don't necessarily know the exact system he wants to play. But I think like the, the way that I would I would best answer that question is just to say he's been very versatile he's been able to do a bunch of different things. I mean, in his first season, he switched to a back three during the FA Cup and and, and ran through those knockout stages, first with Sheffield, and then I believe it was uh, City, and then um, Chelsea in the final. And, you know, he had amazing success being able to drill the players into a new system when he needed to, when things weren't working out. And particularly in that season, I just remember it being a lot about the fact that Um, we were really unable to play out. We struggled to play out for the back uh, with with Bern Leno and with, um, I think it was holding was the other center back, sometimes Mustafi. But, you know, David Luiz was the only guy in that back four that could really, you know, pass out. And so he switched to that back three. He compressed the space a little bit. And then obviously, Emi Martinez came in at the end of that FA Cup run and showed a lot, lot more skill on the ball. And he was able to really open up, I think, that formation. And now, you know, skipping on to this season, I think what he's done is, He's finally got some of the players that he wants. He's finally got a really, really strong back line, technically, mentally, I think, um, as well, with with a lot of leadership, you know, with Ramsdale in there, who obviously we know now pass incredibly well. And so he's moved into this sort of, uh, you know, I would say like this 4-2-3-1 situation, or, or, or what is it, a 4-2, yeah, like <laughs> ha- whatever, however it is with the, with the sort of the pivot there uh, with Jacques and Partey. Uh, and sometimes he's done a 4-3-3 as well, but I think most importantly is he's been very versatile and he's clearly liked by the by the players. And they really they play the way he wants to play, regardless of if that's a small systematic systematic week um, or, or if it's something that we're consistently building like we have been, I think, in the last eight or nine games.
0: So uh, there's a lot that you just went through, and I'm glad you touched on it because I have three or four different aspects of that answer that I, I would like to dive into with you. But the first one and you mentioned it. Um, Arteta, his road to this managerial seat has been different from others in the sense that we look at, at some first time managers in the last couple of years who've entered, who've gone and 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 coached their, their clubs that they played at as players. And they've gone there largely through two different routes. And there's the Arteta route, which is coming up first as an assistant, as you mentioned under Pep Guardiola. And then you've got the, the Lampard and the Pulau route who, who, in, in Lampard's case, as you mentioned, was, was managing a derby. But Pirlo was his first major job. Um, and I think that's an interesting split because we look at Arteta and, and that background with Guardiola has often, at least in the first couple of years, kind of been looked not as a knock, but as kind of like a, a joke in a sense in that it's his first real managerial job, but what does it matter? He was just moving coins around for Pep Guardiola. But you look at, at those three guys and Arteta is the one who's lasted the longest. So how do you attribute that that Guardiola that that time under one of the greatest managers in the 21st century, I mean, is that where he gets that tactical flexibility from? And do you think that that connection with Guardiola has actually, it was looked at as a weakness, but it might actually be a strength in a sense, because you look at guys like Lampard and Pirlo, they're out the door, Arteta is, is still in the job and he's thriving. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I would say it's definitely a strength. I mean, I mean, learning under Pep, even regardless of what he was doing, although I think we know, you know that he he was also a really big part of um at the very least the player development side of right. City when he was there um developing some of those wingers and and getting their attacking numbers up particularly with Ryan Sterling um but I think like it's really important to say that like that clearly does translate and has translated to for me more than anything the ability to be versatile and the willingness to um kind of like change when 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 needed to it's something that it, I I kind of described some of the. Bigger coaches um, in world football as as one of the reasons they've got to where they are, including Pep, you know Klopp, um, you know Antonio Conte, obviously at, at Spurs now. Um, you know I attribute that they they often have this sort of intangible that makes them special. So for Pep, I think he has this incessant need to be tinkering with it and tinkering with his formations, his lineups, the way he wants to play, the way he wants to create chances, and what that does is. You know, on, on one level, it sometimes makes him make mistakes in bigger games because he overthinks things, which I think is a valid criticism of his right. of his coaching ability. But on the other side, what it, it translated to Arteta is the ability to see the game in a really 360 view. There are certain coaches, I think Lampard in this case, and Pirlo, who they came in with a very specific style that they were like, we are going to play this rigid style and that's it. And that's the way that I, I want the team to look. That's the way I want it to set up. And, you know. I might not have the experience to adapt from there if something goes wrong. And what happened is things went wrong. And with Arteta, when things have gone wrong in this situation, he's been able to adapt really quickly. And I think that comes from the fact that he learned under a guy like Pep, who is, although he his philosophy of the game stays the same, I think that he isn't as concerned with the specific roles and formations that the players play. And he he teaches more of a a rounded idea of football to the squad that translates into being able to do different things on the pitch week to week, depending on the opposition or the form that you're in.
0: And I think too, and that's a, that's a fantastic point. I think another uh, a pro of that is Arteta, as you mentioned, inherited an arsenal that was still reeling from the, the Wenger route. And I amory obviously didn't do a whole lot to progress the side. He inherited an arsenal that had holes, virtually everywhere. And when you inherit a team like that, you can't be tactically stubborn. You can't be tactically rigid. You have to be flexible because you might have players who, who, whose form is constantly up and down or might be better here on one week and here on another. And that flexibility is really, really essential when you're operating with players who are, are stuck in this, in this period of the club where we don't really know where we're going. So that tactical flexibility from Pep Guardiola And I'm glad that we mentioned it because I, I, truthfully, I haven't seen this talked about many places. That tactical flexibility that he inherited from Fred Cordiola might be the best thing that that he's taken with him from his time at Manchester City that other managers in his position who got their first job, i.e. Lamparda and Pirlo, didn't have. Um, Speaking to that flexibility, I think when I look at this Arsenal side, and I know this is a part of the team that you're also very, very high on and speak about quite a bit, is we see that flexibility even now, very much so in the defense, in the back line, that revamped defense that you mentioned with players like Ben White, Gabrielle, but also now Takehiro Tomiyasu, who we will dive into because you love Tomiyasu, and I wish Tomiyasu is at Spurs. I love Takehiro Tomiyasu, um, but also Kieran Tierney. And this defensive flexibility, you mentioned, Arteta's been sticking with the back four, but But at times, last season, in an FA Cup run, played in a three-back, which is what we saw him win the FA Cup with. Um, How has that defensive flexibility made this back line so good? Because Arsenal, in, in 12 months, have gone from one of the most frustrating, leaky defenses with names like, as you mentioned, David Luiz, Rob Holding, to now, really, you can say, one of the most consistent defenses, arguably, in the Premier League. Is that due to its flexibility and its ability to do multiple things at once?
1: I think so. I, I think that it is it, it, it's two things for me that it starts with. And this is what every defense really good defense starts with, in my opinion. The first thing is uh, a mentality, a really good mentality. And what that means is is a willingness to work with each other, to work with the people next to you, uh, fluidity in, in which you communicate, whether that is it, you know a shared language or it's you know a way that you use hand signals, the way that you yell, things like that make a really big difference. And then the other thing is just having leadership quality. And I think that's a really, really important thing that we have to look at from this defense. When you look at everyone across the line, Kieran Tierney was, was uh, captain Celtic at times when he was there. Gabrielle, I don't know if he captained the teams that he was at before, but he is a commanding presence and is always talking, yelling on the pitch. Ramsdale is an incredible leader. As we've already seen, he marshals his backline really, really well. T- Takihiro Tomiyasu has also captained t- sides at youth level. He was always sort of like the leader growing up when I, when I was doing research for the piece, that actually wrote for Breaking the Lines about Tomiyasu. you know, there's a lot about him and his leadership quality growing up, his ability to sort of just like see through adversity and really want to succeed. And then you have Ben White who, you know, has operated in systems like at Brighton and at Leeds where you have commanding presences around him, more veterans at the center back position who, you know, are able to help him out. And so he's found, Arteta has found this perfect balance, right? Where you have the right mixture of leadership and good mentality. And then from there, the secondary element of it is technical quality because he wants to play out the back. And what he's found is, is a group of guys who, in my opinion, they're the most technically um, uh, skilled backline in the entire league. And and the reason why the last piece for that, for me, was Tomiyasu, having the ability to invert as a right back is um, rare in the league, as we've seen right now. It's not a lot of players that can do that. And most importantly, he can play with both feet, right? So he has this incredible technical security already, but he also has these physical attributes that give him such an edge. Gabriel's passing has been much much better this this year. I mean he still sometimes um lacks a, a little bit of awareness over his right shoulder. But I think a lot of times, you know, he's been really, really good and really, really calm. And then Ben White and, and Ramsdale are two of the most technically proficient, um, you know, one of the most technically proficient goalkeepers and then one of the most technically proficient center backs. I mean, you know, Ben White could play in midfield. if, if very, very comfortably. I, I, I'm pretty confident about that. Um, and then Karen Tierney, of course, as well as Nuno Tavares, who stepped in the last couple of games, again, really high technical quality, security. So that when things do go wrong at the back, they have the tools, those players have the tools to, one, talk to each other and figure it out, and two, the technical ability to you know, you know, make those clearances that you need and also be a part of the attack, right? So that there's not this massive separation between attack and defense, which has been the issue for Arsenal for a really, really long
0: time. Right, and I think another player that we can throw into that conversation in terms of, of being a, a link, somebody who's been a liaison between the two and who also is, is technically proficient, not part of the defense, but but Thomas Partey, who is who's Nikola Teta's crown jewel in midfield, at least he's supposed to be. Obviously, his form has been up and down. He's been very good for Arsenal this season, but another player who's difficult to take off the ball, uh, progresses the ball well, and can drop into the defense when you've got players like Tomiyasu and Kieran Tierney flanking up the pitch. And that's what I love about this Arsenal defense is is that flexibility is there, and you you speak on Tomiyasu, and, and this is, again, I, I read your, your player analysis on Taki Tomiyasu if you're listening and if you haven't, go and read it because it's brilliant. But Tomiyasu, I mean, we speak about it was a deadline day move. It Truthfully, at least from my perspective, maybe it was different from, from your perspective, seeing as you were probably in the trenches a bit more than I was. But it seemed almost like it wasn't a, a panic buy, but one that came out of nowhere, in a sense. Tomiyasu to Arsenal. It was, it was a deadline day move. Spurs were very heavily linked with Tomiyasu as well. And when that move went through, we looked at Tomiyasu and and his his scouting report was he's... A, he's he plays center back and he plays right back, but he's not really a consistent starter at either. He plays both. And I think that was painted as a weakness in a sense. as Oh, he doesn't play center back, he doesn't play right back. That is proven. Would you say that that's arguably proven to be his biggest strength? His ability to play at right back despite playing as a, a, a center back in a back three in Serie A. And his ability to do both, and as you said, his technical ability to progress the ball, which is what Arteta has been trying to do with this defense since you joined the club,
1: yeah, I, I think it is. I think to be honest with you, um, it's his dynamism that makes him such an important part, and, it, and it's the dynamism of all the players in that back four as well. It's the fact that they can all do a couple different things really, really well. That most importantly complement each other. As opposed to looking at Tomiyasu as an individual player, it's easy to see that he does have some weaknesses. He doesn't necessarily have, uh, you know, really quick, cr- cr- crazy five yard burst. He doesn't have a ton of lateral quickness at times, but he's got a guy next to him in Ben White who does have really good lateral quickness, right? Who does have good five-yard burst and can kind of cover for those weaknesses. And so what Tomiyasu brings is, is first off, and and obviously a really complete defender already. He can play across the back line. So he's comfortable in a lot of different situations. He's comfortable with different angles of the pitch because he has the ability to play with both feet. So he can open up his body. And that means he can also drop into a more central area when Arsenal are attacking with numbers. Um, and so on the defensive end, he's already got so much, right? He has incredible pace over a long distance as well, so he's really good on the break. Um, I think you can see a couple examples of that potentially against Villa. But there's been a lot of times, too, when he's going forward, and you can see him overlapping really well, too. And what I think the idea of t- signing Tomiasu was, for me, it was going to be between Emerson Royale and Tomiyasu, And one was going to go to Spurs and one was going to go to Arsenal. Yeah. I always saw it like that. And at the end of it, it ended up being the reverse. And I'll be honest with you, before I knew a lot about Tomiyasu, I rated Royale higher because he has a really good physical profile. He's technically proficient, and he bombs forward really, really well. But I realized that's not what Arteta wants from his right back at this time. He has a very strong attacking core at left back. He wants to be able to move the direction of the attack in in that way and allow Tomiyasu to be more of a sort of baseline for which Saka and Odegaard can work off of, right? Or Odegaard or whoever's dropping into that area. It's been like that last couple of games, but most importantly, Saka and Odegaard can have this base from which they can be a little bit more, um, have a little bit more freedom and, and, and express themselves a little bit more. And that's what he's, he was looking for in the short term. And he's been really good offensively too, in my opinion. I mean, there's, there's some amazing clips when he was playing for Bologna, where he, you know, shows incredible ability to strike, strike through the ball. Those really, really good ability to cross the ball. If he were able to uh, develop his uh, dribbling and his awareness when he's bombing forward a little bit better, he could become a player that is not necessarily similar to Kieran Tierney in the way that he plays, but can deliver quality balls into the box and contribute positively on the offensive end as well. So for me, it was Arteta really solidifying his defense and at the same time, um, you know, getting somebody who I think Tomiyasu is 22, um, who can develop an offensive game and has a lot of potential in that, you know, in that
0: role. And that, that's to me, what makes this Arsenal defense so scary and why it'll be so good for so long is, is you mentioned it, the, the, the two things, right? The the technical ability and the willingness to work with each other and, and the leadership as well. But this is a defense where there is no clear cut veteran in it, but it hasn't been an issue at all. Cause as you mentioned, Tomiasu has this leadership ability. Ben White has, has always been in the summit. He was always one of those players. Kieran Tierney, as you mentioned, wore the captain's armband at Celtic, which is one of the most the most connected clubs in Europe between team and and supporters. And the supporters loved Kieran Tierney. Um, I mean, this is a defense without that veteran, without that that David Luiz. You could say, who? But but they they haven't needed one. They they've all been so willing to work together. And Aaron Ramsdale too, too in a sense. I mean, a lot of times you see young defenses with a vocal veteran goalkeeper. That's not the case for this Arsenal team either, but. They've been able to to survive and thrive, and they will for for a long, long time. Um, so, what's what's next in terms of the progression of Arsenal? Because one of the questions that I have for you that I haven't that I haven't been able to figure out myself is how this team plays best in or how how they they line up best in attack. Because as you mentioned, we've seen Arteta do a number of different things this season with Arsenal, and it's to be expected. And Martin Odegaard is still relatively new to this Arsenal side. Of course, he was there on loan a season ago, but um, still one of the lesser tenured players in this Arsenal team. Um, but Saka, we know he can play 7,000 different positions if he has to. Emile Smith-Rowe, we know he's played centrally, he's played wide. In your mind, what is the best way for Arteta to line up this attack? Because you've also got players like Alexander Lacazette who might be on their way out, but can play centrally or can tuck in behind a Bemiang It's Stryker who can also play over on the left. So how how does Arsenal play best in attack? What is, what is your ideal front three or front four for this current state of Arteta's Arsenal?
1: Yeah, so I, I'll go with a, a front four because I think that's really what he wants. I think he wants that guy in midfield to be super attacking. He wants that 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 player who's dropping in, you know, a, a little bit lower than Aubameyang to be just as attacking a, as the front three. But I think that the most important thing is that he's found a front three, in my opinion, that are pretty much undroppable right now. He's got yeah. or three of the four, you could say, are undroppable right now. That's Smithrow, that's Aubameyang, and that's Saka. And, um, you know, for me, Smith is undroppable because he is one of the best penetrative runners in the entire league. He's incredible with the ball at his feet. He can dribble amazingly well. And he has a natural chemistry with a fullback who is really good at whipping in crosses and has technical ability. So when him and KT are playing together, they play off each other really well. Um, And then Aubameyang is in, in my opinion, he looks like he's in the best shape of his life. Um, in his career, he's there was an athletic piece that came out this morning actually that detailed um, how many pressures he's made already this season, and his you know his pressing numbers have exploded, and he's leading our press as the veteran focal point, and he's added his goals back to his game, so he's unbreakable. Saka on the on on the other side on right wing is incredible. I mean, for me, the player that I, I think some I saw someone tweet this, I, I I wish I could credit them, but I don't know what they're. I don't remember the ad off the top of the head, but I've seen other takes that, that have said this that he looks a lot like Angel Di Maria and you know his his prime days at Real Madrid. And I think he is he is what if Angel Di Maria's game, like if there was a player like him in the Prem, it would be Soccer because he's a little bit more bulky than him. He's got a little bit more muscle, he's a little bit faster, and he has a little bit less flair, um, and, and maybe a little bit less creativity than Di Maria did at his peak. But he's incredible as a winner, he's an amazing off the right wing because he can play with both both his feet so then the, the question really becomes who's that fourth guy and so far it's worked for them to rotate between um Lacazette and, and Odegaard and, and that has that has worked largely for them um but I think that for long-term stability you need a player in that in that position unless Odegaard really really explodes I see him as being a more rotational option I still still think he's going to get game time and 30 to 40 games a season because he's a really incredible player. But to me, I think that there are particularly center forwards who we could look at um, and, and maybe try to pick up that have a little bit more of what Lacazette brings. And when I see Lacazette in the side, the thing that he does so well is he holds the ball up really well. And then he presses really well from the front and he's got the physical ability to press in the premier league. The issue with Lacazette is he doesn't have the thing Erdegaard does have, which is vision and, and passing ability, right? And so what happens is when you play one or the other, you lose a little bit, right? But when you play them both, you lose stability at the back. Like I think we saw that against Crystal Palace. We saw it in, for sure, one game this year where Partey was kind of left on an island because it was Odegaard and Lacazette, or Odegaard and um, a a center forward or something like that. The attack was a little too unbalanced in that game. And what you need is you need a high-pressing center forward who can play just behind Aubameyang or right next to him or through the middle, regardless of how it is, who can hold the ball up and can do the thing that what Aubameyang is doing right now, which is he's dropping deep, Ramsdale's pinging balls directly, breaking two lines of defense, hitting him perfectly in stride, and he's turning, spraying a ball out wide and starting an attack that way. Ideally, Aubameyang should be the guy that's out wide, making a diagonal run in, and somebody like Lacazette or, like I'm suggesting, like a hold up forward can drop into that space, catch that ball, turn, and then put somebody away like Aubameyang. Um, and then you just have smith as an additional option up there. So the fourth guy in that attack is the question. But as of right now, it's working out. That rotation between Odegaard and Lacazette, it's working out really well. Um, but, yeah, I do think that there needs to be one more player. And I don't exactly know who. I've got a couple names um, bouncing around in my head, but but I don't really know exactly who that person is yet, to be honest with you.
0: Well, that's the thing, and that's what I wanted to ask you, is is you mentioned this this hypothetical high-pressing center forward who can tuck in behind, behind Aubameyang or whoever is playing in that central role. Is that player currently at Arsenal in your mind, or is he somebody that that the club will have to go out and bring in in January over the summer?
1: I, I don't think he's there. I don't think he's at Arsenal right now. I think Lacazette will go in the summer, and I think Lacazette's uh, technical ability has just dropped off a lot in the last couple of years. Um, I think that you know, I I really like Dominic Calvert-Lewin. He's homegrown. He's going to cost – he would cost a ridiculous amount of money. I don't <laughs> know if that's possible to happen, but he's a guy that has pace and has power, and that's really what you're looking for in that in that player. You're looking for sort of a clinical guy who's also comfortable dropping in and basically winning aerials, but just having the ball bounce off him in a controlled way, not a guy that's just kind of like – like Lacazette, sometimes he'll, he'll drop in and the ball will kind of just like – rock it off him in, in, in some direction. It's not a great pass. It's not a great touch. Um, and, and maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work. But uh, somebody who can really bring the ball down really, really well. Or that can operate in that space just in front and around the edge of the box, who's you know, who got a really clean first touch. I mean, Gabriel Jesus is, is, is a player that I really, really love, who I think hasn't really been talked about a lot. But there is a, a link between Arteta and, and Jesus at City, even though he's been playing on the wing this season. I think he's he's a really good player because he also presses really high, um, and like to be honest with you, I can't speak to many other players on the on the market. I, I know we've been linked with Alexander um, Isaac for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I haven't personally seen enough of him to to really believe if he's that the right player to to be up front there. Um, and there's a couple French prospects. I don't. I'm going to butcher his name, but um, Amin uh, Guriri, in uh, who plays for. Yes. I forget what team he plays for. I totally butchered his name, but he's he's in France. He's playing really, really. I think he plays for Nice, maybe. Um, I think he plays for Nice, yeah. <laughs> and, and he's been he's been great. Um, but but honestly, yeah. To just kind of wrap up this point, I do think we've got two guys coming through, in Flo Balogun and Martinelli, right. who obviously Martinelli had an amazing breakout season, but then has kind of calmed down. Those two guys have a lot of ability to to kind of play that role, and maybe it, it is Aubameyang. You know his his role is going to be to kind of drop centrally more, and then have a guy like Martinelli or Balogun kind of ahead of him, or even you know Balogun maybe has the physical ability to drop into that role that I'm talking about Lacazette. In. But I, I wouldn't write those guys off. I, but me personally, I think that we need um, a right back and a CDM or a center, uh, another midfielder, an attacking eight, eight number eight midfielder before we find a center forward.
0: So uh, yeah, I mean that, that's that's a. Uh, uh... I think the way that this team plays an attack now, I, I certainly understand and agree. I mean, you've got a, a an attacking three at least, like you mentioned, with Smith Rowe and Saka. Who, by the way, I fully agree. I mean, Emil Smith Rowe is is objectively one of my favorite players in the Premier League. That man is is absolutely electrifying. Um, the low, the grayish socks, the the grayish Sox, socks. But aside from that, I mean, he's he's so much fun to watch. And Bukayo Saka is Bukayo Saka. Bukayo Saka burst onto the scene out of the Haaland Academy. He was playing left wing back initially, wasn't he? He was playing in a back five. And he's just, he's just thrived anywhere. He's gone, obviously has, has taken significant minutes with England at the Euros as well. I mean, he is a wildly fun player to watch as well. These two players, and this is, this is, well, I don't want to say it's my last question because I, things pop up and then we go on for another 45 minutes, but with Smith Rowe and, and Saka, I mean, these obviously were, they were not nobodies coming out of the Highland Academy. They were, they were uh highly regarded Arsenal prospects, right? But I mean, I know you regard Saka as borderline world class. You, you've 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 said that on multiple occasions. I don't know how you, if you feel similarly about Emil Smith Rowe if he's quite there yet. But were you ever expecting these two players to play integral roles like the ones they have now? Because I think they were obviously supposed to be highly regarded players. But as you mentioned, these are two of Arsenal's. However, I mean, who else is undroppable in this Arsenal side for you? I mean, it's it's obviously Smith Rowe. It's obviously Saka. But um, I mean, are they your two most important players, would you say, right now? I mean, were you expecting these two to be as good as they are?
1: Definitely not. I, I don't think anybody really expected them to explode the way that they did. Um, I mean, I would say that they're unjobbable because it, they give us something that we can't find, right. you know, in, in attack. You know, we don't, we don't have depth in attack, you know, in, in a way where we just can bring on goals, wherever. And so that's why those two guys, they create so much, they score so much. And already this season, we've seen that that, you know, you can't be dropped. But to be honest with you, the first one, I'll, I'll talk about Saka a little bit. When he burst on the scene, um, I had a feeling about him the same way I feel about Tino Livermento over at Southampton right now, is that he's playing right back. That guy's playing right back right now, just like Saka was playing left back when he first came in to the first team. But he looks like he could play right wing. He looks like he could be an incredible right. winger. He has the physique for it. He has the pace for it. He has the ball striking for it. He has the awareness. I don't know if he's got necessarily the angles in his game in the way that Saka does, which I think is what separates Saka from a lot of other young wingers, is his ability to see the see the game not just sort of from his touchline and then a 90-degree angle, but to be able to turn his body and, and see sort of the, this entire part of the pitch as well. Um, but I think what's really, really important to say is that, like, Arteta has given both of these guys the platform to play in a system that suits their style. Smith Rowe is allowed to drop into the midfield collect the ball turn and run. he's allowed to be wide high and wide on the touchline when we're breaking because he is one of our best drivers of the ball one of our best you know head-on dribblers soccer is allowed to sort of stay high and wide and collect those balls where he's able to take on a player one-on-one and he's so good in one-on-one situation although his form has been a little bit up and down this year because he's been playing so many games in my opinion um you know, he, he, there was a time when we were in the Europa League last season, we were making a deep run into the Europa League, um, which ended tragically, of course, where Saka was literally being double and triple teamed by every single team we played, because if he got one-on-one with the opposite fullback, he was toasting and creating a chance immediately because his, you know, ball striking was so consistent at that point that he was either putting on an accurate shot on target or he was, you know, putting a across in perfectly and he can go either way. And so you know, I say soccer is world-class. I say Emil M- M- Smith is, is just about there. I still think that some of his finishing um, technique could be cleaned up a little bit, but he's incredible. I can't say anything really negative about the guy. He's amazing. And I think that those two guys are undropable for sure. And I didn't expect it, but I will say that, um, their evolution has been great to watch because I feel like Arteta has given him them the freedom to do what they want to do ideally on the pitch. Maybe he's not asked them exactly, hey, what would you like to do? Okay, go ahead and do it. But he's identified, okay, Saka should not be in the defensive phase. He can play there. He can play pretty much anywhere, as you, as you mentioned. But he's most effective on the right wing. He likes being on the right wing. Smith Rowe is not most effective as a number eight. Or, you know, even necessarily as a central number 10, he's really good in that left half space. That's what he likes to be. So play him there. And he's done that. And I think that um, if you want to see other guys like Smith Smithville burst onto the scene, you're going to need coaches who are going to, you know, bring that out of them. And that's why I'm glad to live at mentor at Southampton, because I, I, I think he'll be given. A, he's already been given an opportunity to show his offensive ability. And I think that he has potential to move into a more offensive role. Um, even than he is now, which obviously is very offensive as he is now. But when he comes back to Chelsea, hopefully he gets a chance to be, or I don't know if he, he's at, at a permanent Southampton, but I'm assuming Chelsea would have first dibs potentially if, if he were to go out again or, or, or leave the club. But um, yeah, it's it's a lot about the coach giving them the freedom to do what they want to do.
0: And hey, I don't, I don't mean to get ahead of myself at all, but that uh, is not a trait that many modern day coaches have the willingness to adapt their tactics to their players best attributes and you look at player at, at managers like Brendan Rodgers, Grant Potter, those are two managers who do that and those are two of the most highly regarded managers in the entire league. So again, don't me to get ahead of myself, but it is uh it is a, a rare trait and it's one that is obviously working particularly with those two. Um all right, let's let's tie a nice little bow on this because no, I said I said pre-show that we're going to shoot for fifteen minutes. I think we're approaching thirty, and I have not regretted a single thing. This has been a fantastic conversation, but um, we do have to wrap up eventually. We we started this conversation, uh, wondering what Mikel Arteta is is what the the long term plan in place is because there were plenty of times throughout this two two and a half year tenure where it didn't look possible. It looked likely that Arteta might might have have received a premature sacking, and obviously that has not been the case, and it's looking to pay off with significant dividends. Um, As a buy, I think he may have escaped that, that realm now though, because we're looking at this, this arsenal, and now we can see what Arteta is trying to do. And this is, uh, the the team is constantly evolving and adapting to his tactics. Is this, and again, I'm going on and on, but the excuse when when Arsenal, not excuse, but the reasoning when Arsenal found themselves in poor form was that, well, this is not make Arteta's team. This is the one that he inherited. Give him time to bring in his players, and we'll see how that turns out. Is this Mikel Arteta's team, or is there still room to grow and to changes to make?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is his team, um, and I think I think I tweeted something like this after um, the 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 game, whatever the game was that was right after City. Um, I tweeted after that game that this is I was maybe Norwich, Norwich, Nord- 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 it was Burnley, but. Um, you know, this is the team that he's got. This is, he's found a consistent 11 and he's, you know, the guy who's brought majority of those guys through. There's only two or three of them that were that, you know, have been at the club longer than, that 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 have really survived his tenure up to this point. And in my opinion, the two and the three or the four, maybe, you know, given injuries or, you know, what happens on the day that are not his players, you know, per se, are guys like Granit Xhaka and Aubameyang who right. are really, really good. And, and p- people tend to not really question those guys' abilities. And so, yes. And, and I would I would add to that, that there's no excuse also for them to drop back into a really, really poor runner form. And that from this point on, you know, not this point, but from the point of when he got his first 11 that he's been sticking with in the last couple of weeks, from that point on, um, there is no excuse for him anymore. He He's got to deliver the results. He's now had the other thing that I think is important, just and I'll be quick on this, that that is important to contextualize with Arteta is that uniquely to a lot of other managers in the league, he has a foundational structure at the club that is seems to be working completely for him. So right. the technical director Edu is somebody who they they talk about their relationship constantly. Their academy director, pair Mertesacker, who's also a, a you know an Arsenal great, I would say, a, a, you know an Emirates great. Um, you know, they, they're they're structuring their academy around the way that the first team plays, right? They want the academy to be helping supply the first team first and foremost, it seems. And so he's gotten all the support in the world to make this work. And it seems, in my opinion, like it's working. And so for me, it's like it's working. It's doing what it's intended to do. And so if it starts to fail from here, yes, the first person I will look at is Arteta, unless, of course, it's an issue with insane injuries or something like that that's totally out of the control. Which is what happened at the beginning of this season. Um, for me, it's Arteta's team, and for me, um, you know, I think the project is going to go bang the way that he's that he that he said famously at the beginning of it. I think it's going to explode. I think we're going to challenge for one of the cups this year potentially, and I think that we are going to push for top four. And you know, I, I, I have a, I have confidence that we'll make it, and I do think that we can we have the quality to make top four. But I I, I try not to make like. Table predictions till the end of the year. But in short, it's Arteta's team and, you know, it's his team to work with. And, and any failing from here, any regression is on him.
0: Yeah. Table predictions is exactly how you get mocked on football Twitter endlessly, is, um, especially at this stage. Um, no, I will say, I mean, this is a team that objectively is is one of my favorite teams to watch. They they are just the way that they they, they build from the back, like you said, everyone's so technically gifted. There's an exciting team to watch. is you, you can't watch Arsenal play and not be attracted to what you're watching. Um and I, I fully, fully agree. Glad we had this conversation. You are certainly a, a a more in-depth Arsenal mind than I am, so I'm glad that we had a chance to uh, to speak about some of the the more uh not, not, not controversial, but some of the bigger conversation starters uh, about Arsenal Football Club. I think this is a fantastic conversation. Hopefully, uh, hopefully the listeners of the Tactics Room agree. You want to go ahead, plug your socials, where we can find you in case they want uh, to hear any more from you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was, it was a great conversation. Hope to be to be on some more in the future. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at ITestFootball. And, and F Football is FB, so it's just ITestFB. Um, on, on on Twitter and I've also got like pinned on my profile like all the articles that I've written um a, a bunch of stuff from uh, breaking the lines and I've got a, gonna have a new piece up hopefully next week um, as well so look out for that uh, but thanks a lot for having me on it was a pleasure
0: once again Aiden Suchak, thank you very very much for jumping onto the podcast and a fully a fully uh enjoyable conversation hopefully the listeners took uh, quite a bit away from that and that's a, a fantastic <laughs> For for the American viewers, State of the Union uh, regarding where Arsenal are right now: on the upswing, getting better, getting uh, understanding better what what they're trying to do under Mikel Arteta, and they look good doing it. Um, what about what's going on on the other side of North London? What's going on at, at Hotspur Way with Tottenham Hotspur? Because I mean, what's going on there? They 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 have sacked uh, their manager. They sacked Mauricio Pochettino three months after a Champions League final. They bring in. Jose Mourinho, keep him for 18 months, sack him, bring in Nuno Espirito Santo, who, by the way, all these guys still are being paid until 2023, if I understand correctly. But they bring in Nuno Espirito Santo, keep him for three months because it was very clearly not working. And that's all paved the way for one of the best modern day managers in the sport to come and take the reins at Tottenham Hotspur. Antonio Conte is the man in charge now at Spurs, and he's the one who's going to be tasked next with turning this ship around. And it's a really interesting marriage, isn't it? Because the the, the analogy that I, that I really love to use in this instance is the irresistible force paradox, which is an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. Antonio Conte is your unstoppable force, a tactical visionary, a winner everywhere he's been, synonymous with success and then your immovable force. And it sounds so silly to say, but it's true. Your immovable force is Tottenham Hotspur, the premier league's metaphorical punching bag, trophyless for 13 years. This is a club that is so devoid of happiness and success that they've literally become the namesake of an adjective specifically meant to deride a team for losing. That's your immovable object. And something has to give here. Um, Either Conte loses at Spurs or Spurs win with Conte. I don't know which one it will be yet, but it's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, What's what's interesting about this marriage, this Conte to Spurs marriage, is that it didn't start on, uh, what, November 2nd, November 3rd, when he was officially appointed. It actually goes a bit further back than that. So before we dive into what Spurs under Conte will look like, let's take a look at at briefly the background of, of their history because it does go back a bit further than just late October, early November. So Spurs... As we know, and as I mentioned, uh, we're in the market for a manager after sacking uh, Jose Mourinho in April. Of course, that was just days prior to a Carabao Cup final. Threw everybody up in arms, kind of wondering what in the world Danny Libu was doing. Also, you'll remember that happened a couple of days. uh, No, actually, I think it was during the whole European Super League uh, conundrum drama. I think Spurs maybe used that time as, uh, oh, we can do this quietly and just get rid of the guy who hadn't been working while everyone is all up in arms about this bizarre Super League. Um, I, I guess it worked to an extent. We're still talking about it, so it wasn't very quiet, but that's when Mourinho was sacked. In Mourinho's place came Ryan Mason, who uh, it, Spurs were his boyhood club. He'd been with the club since I think he was nine years old, came up through the academy. One of uh, one of the, the finest exports at the time was Ryan Mason, um, but of course, suffered a skull fracture on loan at Hull, had to, to retire early from the sport, then got into coaching. He'd been in the youth academy, and then he gets the job as interim first-team coach. Um, Mason, statistically, wasn't terrible. He, he, he won four of his six Premier League matches in charge, Won his uh, became the youngest Premier League coach to coach a game, youngest Premier League coach to win a game, um, but everybody knew that that was not permanent. And in the meantime, while Ryan Mason was leading his boyhood club out uh, and standing on the touchline managing Spurs, Antonio Conte was in Italy winning Serie A with Inter Milan, Ending a nine-year reign of terror that Juventus had over Italian football. That, by the way, Antonio Conte started with Juventus in the early 2010s, um, and they win Serie. A, And then the, Conte leaves as well. The, the way the story goes is is into Milan, looking to liquidate because uh, of the financial losses suffered through uh, through COVID. Antonio Conte not wanting to watch his title-winning, world-class side be Stripped of its parts because this was not. I mean, this was truly a world class Italian football side. They won the lead by twelve points. Uh, this was not a a, a match day thirty eight. Let's squeeze by and win on the final day. This was was full domination of Serie A. What Antonio Conte did with Inter Milan a season ago, but of course Hakimi leaves, Romelu Lukaku leaves, um, and those are you can argue two of Inter Milan's three or four most important players. So Antonio Conte leaves Inter Milan. And Spurs are now in the market for a manager. And the top target, Julian Nagelsmann, actually looks like it could be a possibility. Nagelsmann is interested in the Spurs job. That's where he wanted to manage if he were to manage in the Premier League. But then, of course, Hansi Flick leaves for the German national team, and Nagelsmann goes to Bayern instead. Brandon Rodgers, Spurs had an interest in. Chose to stay at Leicester. Graham Potter, Spurs had an interest in. Chose to say at Brighton. Spurs even went after Max Allegri, who who, who uh, preferred a reunion with Juventus over a move to the Premier League. But Spurs were were leaving no stone unturned, um, and they still couldn't find anything. They go and approach Antonio Conte. And in any other world, Antonio Conte 100% looks at the offer, laughs, and throws in the toilet. That's what Antonio Conte is doing with a job offer from Tottenham Hotspur, if it's not for the presence of the new uh, director of football, Fabio Paratici, who is very close with Antonio Conte from their days at Juventus. So um, Conte doesn't say no right away. He doesn't say no right away. Obviously, he says no. But that's where this this rumor started. This Conte to Spurs, could it be a possibility over the summer? Yeah, but it's it's a really it's a far shout because at the time you'll also remember um Barcelona were considering sacking Ronald Kuman um Manchester United. There were a lot of rumblings that maybe uh Olegon of would be out the door. So Um, There were other openings, and and those seemed more likely. So Conte says no to Spurs. Of course, Spurs ultimately land on Nuno Espirito Santo, which starts very well. A 1-0 win uh, against Manchester City at home and the August Manager of the Month award through three victories in three matches. Um, We all know how that turned out. Nuno Espirito Santo very quickly we realized he was in over his head. This is not the job for him. Fantastic man, fantastic manager at Wolves. Not cut out for the role. At Spurs, so three months later, uh, uh, the the loss to Manchester United, El Sacico, uh the final nail of the coffin that only took three months to construct. So Spurs back in the market for a manager, Antonio Conte still jobless. Spurs, uh, I, again, the details we're not sure of. I'm fairly certain that Fabio Paratici spearheaded it and Daniel and told Daniel Levy write him a blank check, give him what he wants in terms of of. Contract, but also transfer funds, whatever he wants, give it to him. And two days later, Antonio Conte is uh, is managing Spurs. Two days after Nuno Espirito Santo is sacked, Antonio Conte is announced. And believe it or not, uh, this Spurs side, frustrating and and Spursy as they may be, it does actually suit uh, shape wise for uh, uh, formation wise. It does suit a Conte style of football because he prefers the three at the back with wing backs, a striker duo, and this is a Spurs side that have the personnel to make that shape. Um, just understanding what a Conte team looks like before putting names in place. Uh, defender again, that three five two. Some uh, Chelsea was a three four three, but at Inter it was a three five two. Defenders comfortable in possession. They can play with their feet. They possess the ability to play the ball. Wingbacks that have the energy to not just get up and down the pitch in possession, but to press the wide players out of it. Uh, A defensive midfielder who can act as a metronome for the attack, playing behind two more advanced midfielders who can dictate play in the opposition half, create overloads, make late runs. Um, A a very balanced midfield trio flanked by a wingback on either side. Also, the forwards must be complete, possess the willingness to be the first line of defense when pressing out of possession. That's another massive point. And Conte ball is aggressive, pressing, and hardworking players. Um, when he's at the helm, when Antonio Conte is at the helm, with verticality, and aggression are paramount. At least my understanding. Those are paramount. Everything else is just a byproduct of those three components. So let's get into it then. What does a likely Spurs eleven look like under Antonio Conte? Well, the first question comes in defense because Conte has... A number of names to choose from in, in the center of defense, but also fullbacks who can play as part of a back three. The issue is none of them are particularly threatening, with the exception of Christian Romero, of course the summer shining from Atalanta, Serie A's defender of the year a season ago, who should take the first place in Antonio Conte's preferred back three, if not just because he's the most skilled central defender, also because he's a comfortable defender, plays with his feet, not afraid to step into midfield to make a tackle, play a ball forward. He's actually an ideal defender. In an Antonio Conte defense, after Kuti, they can uh, Conte can can pick from a number of names, um, and and none of them will leave attacking players particularly shaking in their boots. Eric Dyer, Davinson Sanchez, Joe Rodon is an option. Ben Davies, Jafet Tanganga. I would be surprised if Eric Dyer didn't at least start with a place in this defensive three. Uh, his physicality is something that will likely uh, uh, draw the the. Interest of Antonio Conte, of course, Dyer is a player who, you know, miss, mistakes aside, does play with passion, um, understands what it means to wear the, the Spurs crest on his chest. And he's got a tendency to hit long balls, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But uh, as we mentioned, defenders who can play the ball are are important in an Antonio Conte system. So I would say Kuti is in the defense. Eric Dyer is in the defense. The final place in the three it likely comes down to Sanchez, Rodona, Tanganga. Uh, Tanganga has shown good form this season. He's looked good at both the center back and the right back under Nuno prior to his sacking. Rodon is a player who I'm very high on quality ball playing center back, complete defender who Conte will certainly like. um, But I think the final piece is most likely going to be Davinson Sanchez is to lose a ball winner, no nonsense defender. Um, Sanchez is he's the kind of player that could thrive on a three man defense a bit more cover to protect him from the inevitable mistake he makes. He's very athletic, very physical to return and, and, and recover if he does let a player get in behind. And a three-man defense makes that a little bit less deadly if that does happen. So That's my, de- my that's my defensive three, is is Rume- uh, Kuti Romero in the center, Eric Dyer, and Davinson Sanchez. The wingbacks in a Conte system are arguably the most important positions in the side, but luckily for Spurs, they've got, uh, <laughs> I mean, pretty much all of their fullbacks are ones that would play better in a back three than in a back four. On the left, it will absolutely be Sergio Reguilon, the- clear first choice at left wing back um he's played as a left back since he joined up with spurs in the summer of 2020 but his skill set is is the the way the way he is as a player he would offer more as a wing back in a back 3 and and those abilities the the willingness to get forward the willingness to put in a good cross he has a fantastic burst of pace to get in behind defenders um Sergio Reguilon is the perfect left wing back for Antonio Conte in this system. Over on the right, bit of a positional battle because you've got a new signing, Emerson Royale, from Barcelona, but you've also got Matt Doherty, who's become a bit of an outcast in this Spurs locker room and among Spurs supporters because of his, his lack of form, and now he can hardly get into the team's 11. But you'll remember Doherty at Wolves, played in that back three, and he was very good in that back three. So an intriguing positional battle at right wing back between Royale and between Matt Doherty. As as much as Doherty may find more success in this system than in a back four, I think he'll probably still have to pry the starting job from Emerson Royale. Uh, Emerson has gotten the the start in both the midweek European Conference League tie against Vitesse and also the Premier League tie against Everton, in which Spurs drew 0-0. I would say it's more likely Regulon and Emerson uh, instead of Regulon and Doherty. Emerson also a bit more defensively minded than uh, than Doherty is, which is something that will please Antonio Conte because he prioritizes defensive solidity over attacking moves. Um, not that he's uh, uh, Jose-esque in terms of his his prioritization of defense, but um, he does he does like to focus and emphasize defensive shape, defensive structure. The center of midfield is where we find another, another crucial position in, in Antonio Conte formation. And Spurs are thin in midfield. It should be said, um, not, not uh, numbers-wise. They've got a decent amount of central midfielders. The issue is they don't have players who can perfectly fit the roles that Antonio Conte wants them to fit. So we look at this midfield three, and as I mentioned, you've got a holding midfielder and two more advanced midfielders actually in Spurs' first two matches under Conte. We've seen a 3-4-3. Three, and that includes obviously uh, uh, an attacker, a winger in place of one of those midfielders. But I think I don't think it'll be too long before we see him go to a three-five-two. Um, when he does shift to that three-five-two, the the maybe the service level obvious answer for the player in that pivot is Pierre Emile Hoyberg, a, a metronomic midfielder can can progress play good on the ball, slows the game down when he has it but I think we might actually see Conte hand this role to young Oliver skip. Who's actually, he's been a mainstay in the team since rejoining following a loan spill at Norwich um, skip a defensive midfielder who can as well progress the ball. He's looked good in his first few matches with Spurs. Um, well, he's been up and down, but he's looked, he's looked mostly good in his first few matches with Spurs. And of course he was fantastic on loan with Norwich in the championship a season ago, one of their best players en route to uh re earning promotion. So, I think Skip is the player in that holding role only because, and we saw it during the Euros, pierre Emil Hoyberg can offer more when he gets into advanced positions. He was Denmark's, maybe him alongside Joachim Mela, maybe Mikael Damsgaard, one of Denmark's best players at the Euros over the summer. So I wouldn't be shocked if you saw Hoyberg take one of those more advanced roles, somebody who can link with Skip, drop drop into a double pivot if he has to, but more importantly, play the ball to the flanks, cover ground, use his energy to create overloads. And again, we saw that during the Euros, how effective he can be at doing that. The final midfield place should be a creative midfielder who can pull the defense out of position, make runs into the box. Again, like everybody else in this team, high energy, high work rate. And Spurs don't have a player who fits that mold perfectly quite yet. But I would be interested, and, and we've seen Conte show a bit of a propensity towards this player in terms of his substitution tactics. I would be interested to see that will go to Giovanni Lacelso, who, if you're a Spurs supporter, you understand the frustrations that come with a player like Lo Celso, along with basically every other player in this team. But uh Celso, in terms of what he can offer in a Conte system, he can be the one to create overloads on the left or on the right, and I don't, I don't want. To, he, he's not Nicolò Barella, not even close in terms of, of of style of play. But he can offer some similar things. Again, they're not like like midfielders, but there are some similarities between the two. Uh, their abilities to dribble forward with the ball, their abilities to both create shooting opportunities. Believe it or not, both Loso and Barella are in the top ten percent of midfielders in shot creating actions, and that might be surprising to hear. For, for for Spurs supporters because Lasoso has been so on the outside on the periphery it seems but when he's on the pitch he does generate shot creating actions actually at a better rate than, than Nicolò Barella. Um Lasoso even might even be Celso, excuse me. Celso might even be able to offer something that Barella didn't, which is defensive contribution. The Argentine Giovanni ninety 99th percentile of midfielders, 99th percentile. That means he's in the top 1% of midfielders in tackles, tackles one, dribblers tackled, pressures, successful pressures, and tackles plus interceptions. So, in other words, a high work rate central midfielder who can create shots, who can move. He's a player that Antonio Conte may already have started to fall in love with. He's been one of Conte's, uh, I I believe, he he didn't start in the Vitesse game, but I'm pretty sure Lozosa was subbed on both against Vitesse and against uh, Everton. So, uh, we may be seeing Antonio Conte give us also these extra looks because he wants to find a way to insert him into the team. Uh, the attacking two, not rocket science, Harry Kane, Heuminsson, already one of the most prolific attacking duos in Premier League history, already one of the most, and uh, form-wise this season, maybe not so, but in general, one of the most dangerous attacking duos in European football. Those two will start at the top. And actually, it, it's it's going to be very fun to watch when we do see it. We can see Kane, Act as that Lukaku, the complete forward, can drop in, receive the ball in the half space, create chances. Son is the luchador of this of this shape. He's the one who can get get wide, which is where he he obviously has played in the past. Make runs in behind, wreak havoc. Kane and Kane X son at the top of a Conte three five two is so so intriguing. So here's my eleven. Here's my likely Antonio Conte eleven. It's Hugo Lloris and Gold. didn't even mention him because I didn't have to. Uh, the three-man defense of Eric Dyer, Kuti Romero, and Davinson Sanchez, uh, Sergio Regulon, Emerson Royal at wing back, Oliver Skip playing in the holding role, Giovanni Lacelso and Pierre Milhoiberg playing ahead of him with Harry Kane and Hyung Min-son uh, as that attacking two. Now, how could this change if Conte wants to bring in some changes? How that was a great sentence, by the way. How can this change if Conte wants to bring in changes? What, what switches can Conte make? in this team. Well, one name that I've already mentioned that I I want to mention again is Joe Rodon because I genuinely think with an extended run of the team, Rodon could be a player who could find consistent minutes and be consistently good in a Conte back three. Again, a complete defender, physical, knows how to use his body, but also a player of the ball. Very much that when he was uh, playing in the championship before his move to Spurs, Uh, that doesn't go away. Uh, Joe Rodon is a center back who I think should at some point Get a run in Conte shape, even even if if I'm wrong about Joe Rodon, I think his skill set is enough to earn a decent look in this Conte back three. Will it work? I think so. If it doesn't, so be it. At least we know. I'd like to see Rodon in this defense. Um another player that I think could make this very intriguing is of course Matt Doherty, who we touched on a little bit. Um uh, Deli Alley could be the player to play as that most advanced in a midfield three. And the reasoning behind that and 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 Delhi has become a bit of a meme, both among Spurs supporters and just among Premier League fans as a whole. He's become a bit of a meme in terms of how how uh, how how little he does off the ball and how he prioritizes flair over over linking attacking moves. But I do wonder if we could see, and I, I'm going to sound like an idiot saying this because I I've called out so many people for using this exact phrase. Oh, maybe we could see a different Delhi. But I think there's actually a chance we could see a different Deli under Antonio Conte, only because he's now playing, if he were to get into this 11, he'd be playing behind an attacking duo, not behind a single center forward. And, of course, what Deli does best is just finding pockets of space at the edge of the penalty area and looking for ways to exploit it. He's one of the best, both in the Spurs team and arguably in the Premier League, at finding those pockets and just exploiting them. Say what you want about everything else. That's what Delhi does really, really well. There's bound to be more of those pockets with both Harry Kane and Hyung min playing centrally. I wonder if we could say, if we, if we could see, and again, I, I, feel, uh, I, I feel dirty saying this because I hate when people say it, but maybe we could see a different Delhi. Uh, maybe we won't. And that's fine. It's just an idea. But I, it, do, it does intrigue me just enough to want to see how it would how it would look. If Conte wants to release absolute anarchy in this Spurs team, and I should preface this by saying these two are just pipe dreams. Is there any chance of this happening? Likely not. Tactically, would this make sense? Who knows? They're definitely the most out there of, of, of anything. I wonder... If Antonio Conte took this deepest midfielder role, this this player who's supposed to be a uh, defensive-minded holding midfielder, and instead went back to his early 2010 days with Juventus when he instead he had Andrea Pirlo playing as a regista as the deepest midfielder, pinging balls all over the pitch, doing next to nothing defensively, I wonder, and I'm already bracing for the ridicule I'm going to get on social media for this, I'm gonna say it anyway. I wonder if that's a role that Tongi and Dombelli can play. Obviously, Tongi and Dombelli does next to nothing, out of possession, off the ball, whatever. Knock him for that all you want. What you can't knock him for is his ability to dribble with the ball, to keep the ball at his feet, to 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 withstand the press and to break the lines, no pun intended. I think if Antonio Conte wanted to go back to that regista. Tanguy Ndombélé might be the best option for it. Now, of course, that likely requires Hoybjerg and Lo Celso as the two midfielders playing ahead of him, because you still do need high energy, high work rate uh, midfielders. Hoybjerg, who can come back and defend if necessary, LaCelso who can press a bit higher up the pitch. But if if, if Conte wants to give Ndombélé a shot at that deepest midfielder role sacrifice his defensive contribution in favor of a player who can really progress the ball very, very well. It would be interesting to see the other one is, is Lucas Mora who I haven't mentioned yet. I think Lucas, uh, I, I have no idea what, what the reception to these, these two decisions would be. I could get absolutely clowned. I promise you, I watch this team every single week. I wonder and I, you know what? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be confident. I'm going to say this one with my chest because I really, really genuinely believe this. I want to see Lucas Moura play right wing back. There, I said it. I want to see Lucas Moura play right wing back. A technically skilled, hardworking, pacey forward could create all kinds of trouble when isolating the opposition's fullback. He could stay wide and stretch the defense, look for a ball centrally, or he could cut infield like he likes to do so much. Open space for Los and Min Sun to get into over on the right create gaps for everybody still in the center. But defensively, obviously on the surface, that's where the liabilities are. But defensively, I actually think his high work rate, his tenacity, and he, he, he does have a bit of a ball-winning ability that we've seen in spurts. I think he'd be better defensively in a back five than most people would be willing to give him credit for. And you can think of Victor Moses, who was the, a, a winger at Chelsea until Conte turned him into one of the best wing backs in the league when they won the title in 2016, 2017, Lucas Moura might fit that role. And I would love to at least test it because it is intriguing. Um, Compared to attacking midfielders and wingers, Lucas is one of the uh, uh, most energetic of, of all of them out of possession. 94th percentile in tackles, 88th percentile in tackles, one 82nd percentile in interceptions, particularly against teams that sit in a low block. Lucas could be a valuable asset at that right-wing back row. Um, and, I, and again, it intrigues me enough to at least want to see it in action because I genuinely think it might work. Now, do you play Lucas and Ndombele at the same time? Probably not. Probably not. Because then you're sacrificing a lot defensively and you're asking a lot of Pierre Milhoibier, uh to defend. And you've, you're probably asking Los to defend over on the right side as well to help out Lucas if he needs it. But uh, those are two ideas. They're really intrigued me. Um, and this does not mention potential transfers of which there are many. We we can name a couple of them. I think what we'll see is Conte and and uh and Peratici uh recruit out of Serie A predominantly, of course, two Italian men, two, two, two men very familiar with Italian football. Um, and Conte, we already know he, he's going to try to poach from that inter side that he won the title with a season ago, whether that's Stefan De Vrij, Milan Skrinyar, Marcelo Brozovic, Lotar Martinez. There are a few names that Spurs are already being linked with at that interside who could come in. I think Frank Kessie is an interesting option who could play as that real out-and-out defensive midfielder, but likes to progress the ball, has a bit of a scoring touch. He takes Milan's penalties, um, and he does it very, very well. I think he had 11 penalty goals a season ago. Um, Kessie is an interesting option. Another one which has not been linked very heavily, but this player has been linked with moves outwards since... Since he was seven, I don't know. Sergei Milinkovic-Savic is a player who, who could be interesting, more creative, uh, advanced midfielder who could be a part of those that, that pivot ahead of the holding midfielder. Dusan Vlahovic, for me, is the big one. The striker at Fiorentina, more than just a poaching target man, although he does that very, very well. Somebody who can kind of float a little bit, would fit uh, in an attacking two, I think. But he's also, of course, he's physically imposing, very strong, excels in hold-up play, technically refined, If Spurs are going to go out and sign a big fish in the January window, I would not be surprised if that is Dusan Vlahovic, especially considering how many big clubs are also circling around him. So the conclusion here, the conclusion for this Conte Spurs, and I think that's probably, what, 20 minutes that we went on for, which is perfect. (sighs) Ridicule them all you would like. Ridicule Tottenham Hotspur all you would like. They have the potential under Antonio Conte to absolutely rejoin the top four hunt. And if they get their business right, and if Conte implements his philosophy the way that he would like to, not this season, but in in, in the next couple, Spurs could find themselves in a title race. And it it feels weird coming out of my mouth, but genuinely, I mean, uh, look at Antonio Conte's track record. He's won everywhere he's gone. He inherited, a Chelsea, he inherited a Chelsea side that finished 10th a season prior and won the Premier League title. He, inher- he inherited an Inter side that were fighting for top four and finished last season a point off the title. Uh, two, two seasons ago, excuse me. Two seasons ago, finished a point behind Juventus. Last season, won the title. Three straight Series with Juventus that kickstarted this nine year reign of terror. Ridicule Spurs all you would like. Antonio Conte is a manager who knows how to win now. So long as Fabio Paratici and Daniel Levy fully back Conte, gives him what he wants, trusts him, puts the footballing decisions in his hands, Spurs can find themselves following suit. It will require a mass exodus of many players currently in the locker room, players that Spurs have been calling for the heads of since the month after the Champions League final, But if everything goes the way Conte wants it to go, there's no reason why he can't take a Spurs side, led by Kane, led by Son, and led by players that he brings in to a title race. And I fully believe that, and I'm saying that with my chest. Um, Is it a weird marriage? Absolutely. I doubt many people could have foreseen one of the best managers in present-day football choosing to go to Tottenham Hotspur until he actually signed on the dotted line. We've already established Conte is no fan of a long-term project. That's why he left Inter in the first place. Tottenham aren't exactly a club ready to challenge for trophies, but even a chairman as shrewd as Daniel Levy, as shrewd and as frustrating as Daniel Levy, doesn't bring in a man of Conte's caliber without some expectation to prioritize on-pitch success over off-pitch profit, meaning that under Conte's tutelage, like I said, Tottenham could once again rejoin England's elite. And that is how we will end. We'll put a nice bow on this really groundbreaking, earth-shattering storyline that is Antonio Conte managing at Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, and that'll do it. That'll do it for Episode 7. Thank you so much for uh, for tuning in. Of course, only two uh, two topics on this show of course the conversation with Aiden um, I wanted to get all of I uh, it that, that was a really fa- fantastic discussion that we had and then this is a, a storyline that's too big to ignore Antonio Conte at uh, at Tottenham Hotspur so very much uh, very much pleased that you chose to stick with me through all of it and if you enjoyed what you heard please go ahead and follow me on Twitter at willfowler 5 follow breaking the lines on Twitter at BTLvid and if you liked what you heard, Go and check out our website as well, www.breakingthelines.com. There's plenty more of this style content over there. Tactical analyses, player analyses. I think we I think we publish an article at least every single time. Like, like, like Breaking the Lines does numbers, folks. Like go in and, and check them out on the website. Really, really fantastic con- content. Some of the most talented people that I've I've worked with uh, happen to write for Breaking the Lines. So. Go and check out that website. Go and follow them on Twitter at BTLVid. Again, follow me on Twitter at WillFowler5. And finally, if you like what you heard, go and check out the six prior episodes to this one. I think and I hope we're getting better with every single episode. So in theory, this should be the best one of the seven. But that's not, that is not to say that the other six aren't worth listening to also. So with that said, I will see each and every one of you next week for episode eight. It's an international break. Who knows what that brings us? I have no idea what's going to be on Episode 8. What I do know is that there will be an Episode 8. So come back and uh, and tune in for that one. I'm looking forward to seeing each and every one of you one more time. Thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to the Tactics Room Podcast presented by Breaking the Lines.